0: Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, as we continue our exposition in this wonderful letter of Paul to the church there in Ephesus today, we'll be looking at verses 14 to 16 only, and considering that with a message entitled Radical Reconciliation. And I think you'll see uh, why I chose that title as we work our way through this text Um, For our purposes, I'd like to read, though, verses 11 to 18, just to get the broader context. So if you'll follow along with me as I read. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, Excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity. Which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who were afar away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and would you bow with me as we ask God's help during this hour. Our Father, we do come before you as a needy people this day. We come before you as a people who recognize that we have the inspired scriptures which are living and active in our laps and in our hands and in front of us. And yet, Lord, sometimes we can lack understanding. And so, Lord, we pray that you would send the Holy Spirit. Give us understanding. Speak to our hearts this day. Change us into the people that you would have us to be. And, Lord, help us to appreciate the wonderful good news of the gospel, the amazing work of Christ and the reconciliation that he has brought on your behalf to us. Lord, we rejoice in these things. Bless now this time. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, some of you might remember a song that was popular some years ago. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life at peace. John Lennon, what he's done there is he's captured the popular secular reasoning in recent years that faith and religion must end because they prohibit peace. And our text today will totally discount that, will totally show the error of that, because true peace and reconciliation comes through Christ. The Scottish commentator John Edie says this of this paragraph in its widest sense, as this paragraph teaches, Christ is the peace and not merely the peacemaker. He is the author of it, for he makes both into one. He reconciles them to God. He's the basis of it for he has abolished the enmity in his flesh and by his cross the medium of it for through him we both have access to the father and the proclaimer of it. He came and preached peace and we'll see that as we unfold this week and in next week's sermon as we look at verses 17 and 18 the truth of this. I read this past week of a battle that happened in World War II between American soldiers and German soldiers, and as they were exchanging fire at a farmhouse, the family that had lived in the house ran into the barn for safety. The three-year-old daughter was left behind, and when the three-year-old daughter came onto the battlefield, immediately both sides stopped shooting. For a short time, that child brought peace to that conflict, to that battle, And it's the very thing that Christ has done. He came as a babe to this earth. The angel says, glory to God in the highest, and peace to all men. He has come to bring peace, and he does that through the sacrifice of himself on the cross. His peace is not temporary, because as soon as the child was safe, in that analogy that I just gave, the bullets began to fire again. But Jesus' peace is permanent to those who are united to him. Sin is the cause of all conflict. Its arch enemy is peace. When we read passages such as James 4, what is the source of your quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious, you do not obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. When you do ask, you ask with the wrong motives. It goes on to say, you see, peace comes when we die to self. And the best place to die to self is at the foot of the cross. When you see a Savior bleeding through the eye of faith as described in the Word of God, that He's purchased your redemption, that He's reconciled you to God, all of a sudden you see how little and how low you ought to be. Then we can come and with the cry of Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live with my strong desires and passions. It is Christ who lives in me. So as we come to this text, just by way of review, we have several visitors. Um, The book of Ephesians can be split up in different ways. Chapter 1 sets forth in the first half this glorious doxology of praise to God the Father. All persons of the Trinity are praised in verses 3 to 14. In verses 15 to the end, the second part of chapter 1 is that beautiful prayer as he prays for the Ephesians that that their eyes may be opened. And there's three things he prays for there. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, we looked at that reconciliation. We spent several weeks on that. We were dead in trespasses to sin, but God, being rich in mercy, has saved us and brought us in. And so there's individual reconciliation in the section we began last time in verse eleven to the end is corporate reconciliation. that is, we are to- together a people of God. in verse eleven, he gives the command to remember, remember you that formerly you Gentiles were afar off. we were separate from Christ, excluded from the Commonwealth of Israel and etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. We had all of these disadvantages, all of these deficiencies, but then in verse thirteen. But now, it's like verse two or chapter 2, verse 4, but God, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly afar off, have been brought near. And that is the work of God. It's passive. It's his work. He is the one that brought us near. These verses, this section that we're in, I believe are one of the main keys to the whole letter. Comprehensive reconciliation where believers come near to God and to each other by the work of God. Of Christ and His saving atonement. In verses one to ten of this chapter, God was the main subject in the original. In this section, or at least eleven to eighteen, it is Jesus Christ who is the main subject. And there's five things that Jesus does, and we're going to look at three of these today. He breaks down the wall, the wall of partition. He abolishes the enmity, the hostility, he brings peace. And then next time we'll see he proclaims peace and he renders access to God. So today I split up the passage very simply, verses 14 and 15. Under the main heading, you have been reconciled to one another since Jesus abolished the enmity. And then our second point, you've been reconciled to God by the cross. So first of all, our first point. The first thing Paul tells us here in verse 14, if you look, for he himself... Is our peace. If you were listening, verses 11 to 13 is you, it's second person. Now he comes back to the first person. Jesus is our peace, including Jew and Gentile. And not just that he brings about peace, but he is our peace. There's a great emphasis on peace in this section in verses 14 to 17, where the word occurs four times. And the NAS brings it out good. It says, for he himself. It's very emphatic in the original. It is he himself that brings about this peace. We live in a world filled with conflict. We live in a world that lacks peace. There's wars. There's rumors of wars. There's war-torn countries. Even our military in various countries right now fighting wars. There's holy wars. There's peace talks that fail. There's radical conflicts, there's economic barriers, there's various classes that is very strong in some countries, educational and economical barriers as well, family and marital conflicts. You know, this world lacks peace, (laughs) even personal lack of peace, and that's why um, the whole antidepressant industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. Well, what word does Paul use here? Peace. It would probably be helpful if we defined it since it occurs four times in our text. The, the word means to to bind or to join together what was broken. Okay? The essence of it is to set it one once again, to join together that which has been separated. In secular Greek, um uh, With no irony, it actually meant the absence or the ceasing of a war. So when a war came to an end, this is the word, irene, that would be used. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the essence of peace. Because of his work, we are justified by faith, and he has reconciled us to God. As we read in our, one of our scripture readings, Isaiah's prophecy describes him as the prince of peace. Um, other persons of the Trinity, the God the Father, is called the God of peace. In Hebrews 13, and later actually in chapter 4 and verse 3, Paul speaks of the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Various prophecies have looked forward to Christ being peace, even besides the Isaiah chapter 9, Micah chapter 5, Is one where it says, and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the world. This one will bring our peace. Looking ahead to what Christ would do. The Gospel of John, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you that you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. So, Jesus is our peace. Secondly, Jesus has reconciled both groups into one, and this is uh, 14b to 15a. Uh, He's reconciled both groups into one, and this truth is set forth in each verse. Look with me carefully in your Bibles. Look in verse 14 who made both groups into one, now look down in 15, at the end of it, to make the two into one new man, and then in verse 16, that he might reconcile them both into one body. Do you see the emphasis there? Three times, Jesus, it's said he's reconciling the two into one new people of God. A new humanity, if you will. In the end of 14 and the beginning of 15, I look at his parallel statements, and I think um, you'll understand why as we go through this. Well, first of all, Paul says that he made both groups into one, and he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He broke it down. It's literally to release, but it means, it can mean to dissolve. It's an error's past, so it speaks of the continual, completed um, effect of that. The barrier of the dividing wall is the wall of partitioner, as the ESV has, the dividing wall of hostility, which is actually a good translation. You might think of the Berlin Wall, and hopefully you younger people can at least have read about this in, in the history books, but the Berlin Wall for nearly 30 years symbolized what? Enmity between East Berlin and West Berlin. Freedom against communism. You could not pass from one side to the other that's the idea, there's a wall here. But what is Paul speaking of? Is he speaking of a literal wall? Is he speaking of a literal wall like the, like the Berlin Wall? Some say yes. You might remember last time when we talked about how the Jew and the Gentiles and the, and the outer court of Herod's temple, there was actually the, the court of the Gentiles was on the outskirts of that. And there was those inscriptions that said, if you pass beyond this point as a Gentile, you will have yourself to blame for your ensuing death. You remember that? So in a sense, it is a literal wall, can be a literal wall um, that Paul is speaking of. But And there's some truth to that. But I think the context leads me to conclude that, that what Paul is speaking of is not a literal wall only. What Paul is speaking of is much more serious and dreadful. It's an obsessive hostility between the two groups. Remember, Jew and Gentile hated one another. The Gentiles called the... Uh, The Jews, barbarians, and the Jews called Gentiles dogs, and they were fit only for the fires of hell. Well, what is it exactly that fueled this enmity, this hostility between the two groups? What is it that divided Israel from other nations? Well, the barrier was the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law and its detailed holiness code, and and again and again where the Lord said, be ye separate, do not intermarry, be separate from the nations, because you are my chosen people. It was the Mosaic Law that separated them. So metaphorically it refers to the Mosaic ceremonial law that separated the Jew and Gentile. This invisible barrier contained in ordinances. He says this dividing wall, the barrier the dividing wall, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. The word to abolish means to render ineffective, to reduce to inactivity, to make powerless or null and void. And the means, if you look in verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh, it's a reference to the work of Christ on the cross. It parallels, it will see it of uh, speaking of through the cross in verse sixteen, in his flesh and through the cross are parallels. It's speaking of the work of Christ. This is the means, refers to his physical death. Now, what is enmity? It's a word we don't use very often. We don't use that in our home necessarily. Uh, it means to be hostile. It only occurs six times in the New Testament. Um, hatred. Uh, it can mean looking with evil suspicion. One lexicon. It says it's an attitude of heart that puts up barriers and draws a sword. So it's this defensive mode, you know. There's hostility. There's hatred. It's the word that we see in Romans 8, 7, where um, it says the mindset on the flesh is what? Hostility toward God. It's enmity. What is, what's the cause of this enmity? Well... We're all enemies of God by nature because our sin separates us. It alienates us from a holy God. We're all enemies by nature. There's enmity between racial divisions, religious uh, divisions, cultural, social differences. But Christ has abolished all these. But he tells us specifically what it is. If you look in verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity... Do you see the word supplied in the NAS? Which is the law of commandments... Contained in ordinances. It's the law of commandments. So we ask the question, well, would God really just throw away the whole Mosaic law? Would he just cast it all aside? Well, I submit to you that this cannot mean the whole law. It cannot mean that he threw away including the moral law. Because we know that the moral law is written on men's hearts. Romans 2.15. This is implanted in the very heart of man before the giving of the law. That's why throughout Genesis, you see, man knows that murder is wrong, adultery is wrong, and so forth. The law, of course, was formalized, as you know, and the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, as it's set forth. You have the moral law, the judicial law, and the ceremonial law, but the moral law is what I believe is not being thrown out here. Jesus summarized, of course, the law, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's repeated many times in the scriptures. Paul says in Romans 13.8, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Furthermore, the moral law, or the Ten Commandments, are quoted as authoritative in the New Testament. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. In verse 1 to 3, the very same letter, just later in the letter, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Why is it right? It's right because it's, it's in the moral law. Honor, and then he quotes the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. The admonition to children to obey their parents is clearly set forth there and quoted as authoritative. Why? Why is it right? Because it says it right here, and it's in the Ten Commandments. And so Paul obviously isn't saying throw away the Ten Commandments. When it says law of commandments, people get confused. Does that mean the Ten Commandments are not valid for today? No, they are valid for today. He's not saying that. So what is it then? It's the ceremonial law that has been removed. That's what the apostle means here. And, and we know that because if you look carefully, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Those are all the ceremonial aspects of the law that separated the Gentiles from coming in to the Jews, to the worship of the Jews. And again and again, think of it all of the feast, right? Could the Gentiles participate in the feast? No. All of the sacrifices, the offerings, the the laws of cleanliness and purification caused a massive separation between Jew and Gentile. Real Christians delight in the law of God. They seek to obey the law out of gratitude, not to be accepted before him, but out of gratitude. We never obey perfectly. We obey in principle. It's our heart's desire if you've been regenerated. You have a passion to glorify the Lord and to obey Him, but we never obey perfectly, and that's why we rejoice in Christ, because of the active and passive obedience of Christ. We are accepted before Him. It's not about our performance. Christ has fully satisfied the demands of the law and took its curse upon Himself. So it is not the moral law that's been abolished here. The law reflects the perfect nature of God. Matthew five seventeen. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Well, what is the result of this? And we see that in the end of verse 16. Jesus has created a new humanity. See the so that there after ordinances? So that in himself he might make the two into one new man thus establishing peace. That's the purpose. And again, it's emphatic. It's he himself that is doing this. And the purpose is that he might make the two into one new man. Now don't be confused. That's not one new individual. It's an analogy speaking of the body into a corporate entity united to Christ. A new humanity completely, the people of Christ. Back to the Berlin Wall when it came down 20-some years ago, People were not just free to go from one side to the other. They didn't remain East and West Berlin. It became a whole new identity. It was just Berlin. And so too, we are Jews and Gentiles redeemed in Christ are the people of God in Christ. No longer with the distinction of Jew and Gentiles. Paul says in Galatians 3, 28, there's no longer Jew and Gentile. So those who were once enemies are now reconciled. And you see that in the Acts 10, the scripture reading today, where where Peter just can't believe the gospel's going to go to the Gentiles. How can we include the Gentiles? And and there's, of course, if you study your Old Testament, you see little inklings of Rahab and etc. But the gospel now is just boldly going to the Gentiles. And it was hard for Peter. Kill and eat. What God has cleansed, do not consider unholy anymore. You see, the conversion there at Cornelius' house. So, it says here in our text, made the two into one, thus establishing peace. You see, it's nothing less than a new creation, a whole new entity that was needed to transcend the enmity that was between the two groups. Now, I want to qualify this. This is not teaching some ecumenical gobbledygook, as I call it, We reject the idea at peace at all cost. Efforts have been made by well-meaning Protestants, uh, just one example, evangelicals and Catholics together that happened some time ago that somehow, can't we just all get along? Can't we overlook our differences? No, that's a liberal mentality that we reject. Secular culture today says that peace will come when we blend all religions together. No, no. What's the problem with that? Doctrine is thrown out and human reasoning is now relied upon. And we must cherish the teachings of Scripture. We must keep our distinctiveness of who we are and what we believe. That's essentially what we see in the postmodern movement. Hey, you know, come on, there's no absolutes. Can't we just all get along? It's, it's all right. We can overlook our differences. Can not we find some common ground? And we reject that. And that's why preachers in Christ's church must be committed to speaking the truth in love, but to also speak against pluralism in our society because it's rampant and it's everywhere. You must speak against that with boldness, with a resolve to preach the exclusivity of salvation through faith in Christ alone is the only way that anyone can be acceptable before a holy God. That's why Peter says in Acts 4 there is salvation in no one else. There's no other way to be saved. So let me ask you, this one thing that came to mind. Why would anybody want the terminology a Messianic Jew? In light of this passage where there's no longer Jew, there's no longer Gentile, why would you want the the term Jew (laughs) there? There's no longer any distinction. You don't need to take the name Jew uh, to, to elevate anything. So Gentiles are not members of or converts to Israel, but again, it's a new community. It's a new humanity, a new, the, the one, the one man and the one body that we'll see in verse 16. Uh, O'Brien, in his commentary, says, "It's a community that transcends Israel, where Gentile and Jews are on equal footing. And he speaks of the union in these verses is not a union of Jews and Gentiles but of redeemed Jews and Gentiles who are in Christ. So we've seen in the first two verses today, Jesus is our peace. He's broke down the dividing wall. He's abolished the ordinances that separated. And now, secondly, let's consider, you have been reconciled to God by the cross. Verse 16. And might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. First of all, Jesus' work on the cross has brought reconciliation. And I would submit to you that, even though the word order, the verse order here, um, would say the other way, but before you can be reconciled horizontally, you have to be reconciled vertically to God. You will never have true peace. That's why peace talks and all of these wars and all of this, you know, there is never going to work on a horizontal level, level if the vertical is not right vertical peace between God and man is what is essential. And in this verb here, um, it, it, it's a fascinating word, actually, in the original. There's two prefixes added to the front of it, which fully intensify it and give it a rich meaning. The verb without one of the prefixes just means it's a normal word for reconcile, uh, which means uh, legally to reconcile two disputing parties in a court, um, and or of the believer's reconciliation, reconciliation to God in Christ, Second Corinthians five eighteen is one example. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ. Reconciliation it takes it takes someone who is hostile towards someone else and changes that completely one hundred and eighty and makes it a friendly relationship. The word means to change thoroughly. And in our text, it is Christ that is doing the reconciling. And the force of the word is, think of it as reconciliation on steroids or something. It's an intensified reconciliation. What do I mean by that? It is total, it is complete as a full restoration of a relationship that was disturbed and broken by sin. So the idea is enemies, arch enemies are made into best Friends. And that's good news for us. Again, he says here, now it's unmistakable. In verse 14, he said to make both groups into one. That's ambiguous. In verse 15, into one new man. Now in verse 16, it is clear to reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile, into one body. Now, you study the word body in the book of Ephesians. What's it speaking of? It's the church. Right? It's the church clearly set forth here. He's reconciled them into the church. And that's vital because there's some in our day that, that think, well, the church isn't that important and you know we don't need the church and all of that. The, 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 the scriptures clearly teach that the, he reconciled us into a body and we need one another. And that whole family dynamic as we studied in Romans 12 at length, uh, a few months back. Furthermore, I would submit to you that these verses shatter the teaching that there are two peoples of God. Now, what do I mean by that? Dispensationalists teach, and if you're here today and you believe this, I'm not calling you a heretic, but dispensationalists believed and teach that the Jews are God's people plan A, right? That's plan A, working with the Jews when the Jews rebelled and when they uh, failed, then plan B came in with the church, and now he's working with the church. But ultimately, his treasured possession is those people A, and he's going to return to that people. I think these verses shatter that. Not to mention other texts, such as Galatians 3.28, where it's clearly set forth. There is no longer any distinction. We are one in Christ. There's no longer any separation between us. Many times in this section, uh, the, the three I just emphasized, both into one, one new man and one body, and, and, and even beyond this section, he's emphasizing that there is no longer any distinction. And so those who believe this, and I think many believe that teaching because they've never been exposed to anything else, that's why they believe that, and, um, but th- they don't understand the full teaching of the new covenant, Well, how does he bring this about? He tells us that he might reconcile them both into one body to God. It's not just something magical that he says, like speaking light out of darkness. No, it is, look in the text, through the cross. That's how he reconciles them into one body. If you are right with God, your sins were paid for on the cross and it's not as though he paid for the sins of the Jews in a very special way or a better way than, than us Gentiles. No, it's through the cross that he's brought this reconciliation. And what is the cross? We don't always pause to discuss that. The cross referred to a large stake, which often had a crossbeam on it. Uh, it's, become, it's begun to symbolize the Christian faith. You see crosses on various hills and people who want to tear them down. (laughs) Uh, But the cross was a horrible, shameful way to die. Those who, who, who who were sentenced to death on a cross were scourged and stripped and nailed to a cross and sometimes hung for days, exposed, until the vultures would eat them, until they would die, and they could not get any more air because of the pressure. A very painful way to die. It was a brutal, slow death. And Jesus endured this for his children. He paid for every sin on the cross. In his case, he was only on the cross for six hours. Three hours, all the mocking, all of the insults, all of, all of this hustle and bustle. But the last three hours, darkness fell upon the land. And God the Father was pouring out his unmitigated wrath against sin on his son for a fascinating thing. So when we see through the cross we can just pass right by it so quickly but we have to remember what does that mean? It's the cross that has reconciled me to a holy God that has made me acceptable before him that I can worship him in spirit and in truth he's reconciled us through the cross our savior brought a final and complete reconciliation to God Mark it well. The reasons there is so much strife in the world between individuals and families and social and political and nations is largely because those in conflict have not found peace with God. They don't have the vertical peace, so they're never going to be at a horizontal peace. If they're at a horizontal peace, it's temporary. William Hendrickson sums it up well when he says, only then when sinners have been reconciled to God through the cross... Will they be truly reconciled to each other? This is why we must preach the gospel to all men. This is why we must offer hope and salvation in Christ alone. This is why we send out missionaries. This is why we go to the rescue mission. Why we minister at the pregnancy center and all of the other things are street fair. Because we want to take the good news. And we want to proclaim it. We want to see men and women reconciled to God well the last part in verse 16b and by the way all the subpoints i began with jesus so if you look at your outline later the reason is cuz the pronouns and the it's so emphatic this is what jesus is doing through this whole text our last second point under the sec, second second subpoint under the second point jesus has put to death the hostility verse 16 the end by it having put to death the enmity this participle having put to death means to slay It means to kill outright. It can mean to kill even in cold blood. And to kill results in what? A separation. Somebody's dead. They're now separate from the living, right? And so as we look here, and we see that it's past tense here, that what did he put to death? He put to death the enmity, the hostility that existed between us and an infinitely holy God. He slew the hostility So that as one man said, Christ in his death was slain, and the slain was the slayer too. What was he the slayer of? The slayer of the enmity and the hostility that existed between us and a holy God because of our sin. He slew the hostility. Colossians 2.14, Paul writing, having canceled out the certificate of death, consisting in decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way and having nailed it to the cross. That kind of nails it on the head, doesn't it? He's taken that hostility. He slew it and it was nailed to the cross. So it is separate from us forever. Jesus has taken upon himself the full penalty that the broken law required. He paid in full. I don't see these stamps anymore, but when you bought a large ticket item, usually you'd get a big stamp. Paid in full. That's exactly what Jesus Christ has done. He has paid in full the debt that you owed God. And it's not just a deposit. It's paid in full. As Paul says in Romans 8, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did in sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So we've seen, we need this horizontal. We need a horizontal uh, reconciliation and vertical reconciliation. Vertical reconciliation is imperative. We must have that to be right with God, and then we can be at horizontal uh, peace with one another. Jesus Christ is our peace. Well, let's draw just two very brief points of application before we close. The first is this. I hope that you continue to be amazed by the grace of God and the reconciliation that he has brought. Is your confession like that of the hymn writer? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me? Who caused his pain for me? Who him to death pursued Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Remind yourself of the truth of the gospel often. Because we can forget, we can get discouraged as we fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. As we go through our our lives, we can forget the preciousness of the gospel. And we need to remember, as he gives the admonition in, in verse 13, earlier in the chapter, we need to remember what is our response to this great reconciliation? I submit to you that it should be that we ought to glorify him in all that we do. And part of glorifying him is holy living. Paul says in Romans 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Today's July 4th. We're celebrating our national independence, right? But we need to be careful not to turn our freedom that we have as Christians into a covering of sin. Peter says, act as free men, but do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves to God. We need to seek to live so much as it depends on you at peace with all men. Romans 12 and verse 18, I believe. We need to keep short accounts with one another. If you're offended, if you feel like somebody has sinned against you, you don't maul that over and become bitter and bitter and bitter and, and not go and talk to the person. Or if you have offended somebody and you know you've sinned against somebody, go and seek their forgiveness. Keep short accounts horizontally but and vertically. When we sin, when a wicked thought comes, when a lustful thought comes, when we sin in some way where we've gotten angry, we go directly to him because we have access to him. That's next week's sermon. Verse 18, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. See the very picture of adoption there as well. Secondly, if you're a stranger to God's grace and reconciliation, recognize there's only one way of salvation, it's through Jesus Christ Christ. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. It is through him alone. And he's, he's, he's done so much to bring you in. He, he's offered the gospel. And if you're here today and you're outside of Christ, listen to me. It is a mercy that you're hearing the gospel right now. And you young children that are here and you hear the gospel week after week after week, you're going to have dealings with God someday. And how I pray that none of you would ever hear the words of a holy God telling you, away from me, I never knew you, casting you into hell. I read another story about a World War II Uh, American soldiers. uh, A buddy um, had died, and uh, the soldiers were carrying him along, and they wanted to bury him, give him a right burial. The only cemetery was a Catholic cemetery uh, some ways away. When they arrived there they asked the priest can we please bury him here within the cemetery fence and the priest said no I'm sorry um, if he's not Catholic um, he can't be buried here. The soldiers were discouraged, carried his buddy, walked on uh, further away uh, waited until night and what they did is they came just outside of the fence figuring this is the next best thing next to the cemetery but outside of the fence and buried their their, uh, colleague fellow soldier The next day, they went to pay their final respects. They could not find where they had buried this man. So they went and they asked the priest, what happened? And he says, well, I was awake half the night thinking about what I told you and was disturbed about it. The second half of the night, I worked moving the fence so that he could be included in there. And I submit to you, this is exactly what Jesus has done He has moved the fence. He's bursted the barriers. He's abolished all the separation. And so now, with faith in Christ, you can come to Him. He's moved the fence. You can be included, but you must repent and you must believe. How I pray that you, each one here, the cry would be, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come, as it were, to the feet of Christ as our Bibles are opened and as these words are living and active. Lord, we pray that you would do a great work in each heart here. Lord, we pray for those of us who are in Christ and some who have been in Christ for many, many years that we would not cease to marvel at the amazing gospel and the reconciliation that you have brought. And Lord, if there be any here that do not know you, how we pray give them no rest. May today be the day of salvation. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.